You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. I have to admit that there have been a few times that I have been nervous when about to start a podcast, and this is certainly on the list because our guest is Susanna Lipscomb. She is a British historian, writer, TV personality, and commentator. She earned her doctorate in philosophy from Oxford in 2009, and Professor Lipscomb has held numerous academic appointments. She is also a host of the podcast, Not Just the Tutors, which you may find on all the usual podcast platforms. Susanna has 130,000 followers on Twitter, where her handle is at 16th, capital C, girl. And she has a Facebook page with more than 68,000 followers. Professor Lipscomb is not only the world's leading historian on the Tudors and Tudor England. But she is also this week's guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast, Zooming all the way from Great Britain. Professor Lipscomb, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for such a kind introduction. Well, we've been emailing back and forth for what, about 18 months, I think, (laughs) amidst all the drama. And we're very grateful for you to make time this evening. We got there in the end. We did. We did. And I encourage everyone, uh, we're going to ask her about it later, but to look up the Not Just the Tutors podcast and also to like her Facebook page and follow her on Twitter. If you like castles and ghosts and witches and all sorts of, of fun yet nefarious people uh, in history, then uh, Professor Lipscomb's accounts are for you. I have so much I want to cover in our time today, but first let me ask you, How did you uh, become so enthralled with the Tudors and what made you name your podcast, not just the Tudors? Actually, the two things are are bound up in each other. So um, I decided some years back to do a doctorate in history, as you've mentioned. And at the time, I thought that 16th century England was overstudied. And there were too many people working on it. And so I 
in the end did my doctorate on 16th century France and I looked at the lives of women in the south of France in that period. And uh, I was just coming to the end of that when I, well, I thought I was coming to the end of it. It would actually take a couple more years. When I got a job at Hampton Court um, as a research curator. And so I was working, after all, on Henry VIII and his reign. Um, and so I sort of, it was accidental, really. I kind of accidentally fell into the Tudors, although I'd had very good um, teachers and uh, tutors at university, Susan Brigden, who's a great Tudor scholar amongst them. And I'd actually grown up near to Hampton Court and to Nonsuch Palace, or the site of Nonsuch Palace. It's no longer standing. Um, and when I came to do the podcast, I therefore wanted to make sure that we were talking about the Tudors and there are so many interesting stories to tell, but also tell other stories from that time period. So not just the Tudors. So, for example, one of my earliest podcasts was on the story of a teenage um, werewolf. So this is a boy who's a teenager who was accused and convicted of being a werewolf in 1609 in the Basque. And another one, we were looking at the great painter Diego Velasquez. So I wanted to make sure that we were looking at kind of around the globe. Um, we, you know, we've looked at Japan, we've looked at um, the Aztec or Mexica empire, as well as telling the stories of the Tudors. Do you know that there is an American movie made during the 1950s called I Was a Teenage Werewolf? I do, yes. And I, it actually was in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> has some of the worst makeup, actually, of, of all time. Uh, but An American Werewolf in London has some of the best makeup of any of those sorts of horror movies. Um, we have three goals on the podcast today. Or One is to uh, use your time wisely. And the second is for me uh, to um, get through as many questions as I can with some really fun answers. And the third is to make sure that you are so enamored with this podcast that you'll like invite your friends like Dan Jones and Dan Snow and all the folks who who we all follow on Twitter. Uh, it is a I can great... do that. I can do that. I'm at Dan Jones's book, book launch tomorrow night for his Powers and Thrones. So I'll tell him you, he needs to look you up. Well, the reason I mentioned these names and there are so many others, Helen Carr, who I would love to have on because I know she has her new book on John of Gaunt, who was actually the patron of my uh, graduate school thesis subject, Sir Thomas Erpingham. But there's such a great cadre of historians. I, I don't know if younger is the, the best word, but maybe that is the best word. Uh, how fun is it Always to be? Aging. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for those of us who grew up reading, you know, uh, Elton and Scarsbrick, and uh, there's so many, there's so many great Garrett Madley, so many great Corelli Barnett, B.H. Liddell Hart. Uh, those historians, there's a new class, there's a new generation. Is it fun to be a part of that and to be able to emphasize and research new things? It certainly is. And it's a very supportive group of people. Um, in fact, what's so exciting in mentioning the, pod, the book launch tomorrow night is that I'll see these people for the first time in about 18 months, right, some of them, because we haven't had any of these occasions. Of course, like everybody, life has been on hold for so long. Um, and it is very nice to be part of a group of people who are uplifting and encouraging each other in that regard, and therefore who push each other to try new things. Um, 
Dan Jones has been a big influence on me. We worked together on a few TV series and he's been a big influence on me in terms of thinking about how I write. Um, and so my next book is a, it's very much a narrative history book and trying to um, see what I can do and push the, use the terrible jargon, push the envelope on that. Um, and so there's been a sense in which there's been encouragement. And Dan Snow, of course, is responsible for the History Hit Network. And he's the one who suggested I start up not just the Tudors podcast. So with, there's been um, such great support. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I think there is something, you know, when we all started out, um, and some, Helen Carr amongst them are younger than others, but there's been a sense that it was nice to see um, fresh perspectives and fresh faces coming on the scene. Uh, but the thing about historians, of course, is that we're like fine wine or cheese. We, you know, we get better as we age, so we're okay. <laughs> well, there are so many great American historians who, who I mean, David McCullough, Stephen Ambrose, Ron Chernow. I've had some of them on, on the Leaders and Legends podcast, uh, Peter Cousins, uh, who are doing some of their best writing. Uh, Craig uh, Simons, has a, who's a naval historian, Civil War historian, has a new book coming out about Admiral Nimitz. He's in his 70s. I mean, there's no reason to stop writing unless you run out of ideas. And I just can't imagine that that's a problem. No, the, 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 as long as you are able to get to the archives, and, and increasingly these days, um, the archives are going online. So that... Uh, you know, it is possible to even circumnavigate that problem. Then, then I think, as long as the brain is still working, we're all good. Did it help in your research? I'm going to, since your uh, PhD dissertation was on a topic uh, related to France, did you start studying a foreign language very young? I mean, I did French at school. Um, I had only studied up to the age of sixteen. I was sort of was a. There was quite a lot of French spoken in the family, um, and we lived in Switzerland for a few months when I was a child, and I'm sure those things helped. But um, I had no idea <laughs> of the uh, sort of learning curve I would be on when I decided, oh, you know, I can easily do it in French, it'd be fine. And um, then I was learning to read not only academic French, um, so articles in, in French, um, but also 16th century French and that in manuscript so the chief challenge with a lot of the records I was using was being able to read read the handwriting of the darn things I mean they were just so unintelligible um, <laughs> that trying to sort of piece them um, together was first of all having sort of pull them apart you know so um, not literally obviously don't don't get upset um, but there was a, a sense in which the the language was a real barrier but as I say, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be. So, I studied French for ten years and and tried to do some research in graduate school on French and gave up quickly and walked down to the French professor with whom I was great friends and said, "Please help me, just please." And she said, "Yeah, they're both French, but they're completely different languages." Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And it was quite funny because I was living in I lived in the south of France in Nîmes for a while and so I sort of developed these weird like registers of French I was you know in my late 20s when I was living there I guess and so I had friends who were teaching me the kind of French slang so I had that kind of register and then there was the academic French and then my 16th century French I had kind of no normal <laughs> no normal adult French I would just could speak in slang or I could speak in very high elevated academic it was very funny really yeah uh, I do not read fiction very often. 
and I get asked occasionally, I mean, you read plenty of it in college and graduate school and all that sort of thing. And I get asked occasionally uh, why I don't. There's romance and there's intrigue and there's betrayal and all that uh, in, in fiction. And when I ask, get asked why I don't read it much, my answer is always is if I want to delve into those worlds, I just read about the tutors. And it's all real and it all happened. In some ways, to me, that the tutors seem stranger than fiction uh, and more salacious than fiction. Am I way off base? Not at all. You're, you're certainly on base. I think that um, that's absolutely the case. I mean, the, I mean, I am a great fiction reader, but I would say the thing about history is it contains all of that stuff, right? It contains everything that's ever happened. So whatever you're looking for, it's there. And with the Tudors, we've absolutely got um, all of the, the racy uh, stuff you could possibly imagine. I mean, we've got the sort of tabloid story of the, the man who marries six times. We've got the Virgin Queen. We've got uh, tales of daring do. We've got terrible tales of terrible executions and exploitation. We've got characters that we can see for the first time. I'm sure that's so important that actually the Tudors of the first age where we know what they look like, a lot of them, because of the portraiture of the time that survives, or we know what the architecture is like, so we're quite a visual people. But in terms of the stories, the characters and the events of that period, it's a tumultuous, extraordinary time. I'm hoping to get to uh, Holbein's portraits uh, later on the podcast if we have time. Uh, But uh, it seemed to me that the period that I studied in, in, in later in college was, was the Lancastrian period. Then there was this horrible period uh, known as the Wars of the Roses, which my thesis director, who got his PhD here in the United States at Indiana University, he wrote about the House of Godwinson, Harold II, and, and those who was um, defeated by William the Conqueror in 1066. But he always found, he told me, an incredibly brilliant man, uh, said that he always found the Wars of the Roses complicated, like so complicated he had a hard time figuring it out. Is it fair to say that the Tudors brought order out of that chaos? Well, certainly it's, it's easier to follow the narrative a little bit more. Um, uh, from a historical point of view, yes, they did. Um, it's not quite as straightforward as we first think. It's not sort of 1485 uh, Henry Tudor wins the crown at the Battle of Bosworth and then all is well. He mm. spends m- many years of his reign, basically all of his reign really, um, fighting off pretenders to the throne, people claimants to the throne. And even after his death, Henry VIII is troubled by a number of people who still have just as good a claim to the throne as he does. So it's a little messier than we like to think, but it certainly does sort of resolve... Um, the direction of travel, at least for a century. Didn't am I remembering correctly? Did Henry the Seventh put one of the claimants in the kitchen? Didn't he work? He did. As a, work he as did a, as a was scullery that, boy. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that Simnel? Which one was? I can't remember. Lambert Simnel. That's right. Yeah, who, who was this claim to the throne of England and ended up working in the kitchen? Uh, you mentioned fourteen eighty five in Bosworth Field, where Henry Tudor wins the throne by conquest and defeats Richard III. Two quick questions. One, what was your reaction as a, as a, as a Brit and as a historian when Richard's bones were found, King Richard's bones were found beneath a car park in Leicester? I think that's right. That's right. And, and um, I have to ask, 
is Richard III responsible for the deaths of the princes in the tower? <laughs> that second one is a massive question. Um, okay, so uh, what did I feel? So obviously it's it's very exciting. I couldn't really believe it because it seemed extraordinary that something so important as the bones of the former king would end up in a place so unmarked and unhallowed that at some future point a car park could have built, been built over it. Um, I thought it was very exciting. I thought it was interesting also in so far as the the plan in time to, of finding them once they'd been identified they were there was obviously um, in order to try and vindicate Richard. There's a uh, the Ricardians are kind of the Richard the Third mm. supporters, and bar the supporters of Anne Boleyn, there really is no more vocal group in history, um, and who wanted to make it clear that all of the discourse around Richard the Third's deformities, that you know, Shakespeare's conversations, what Shakespeare writes about him having a, a hunched back and that sort of thing was all just a great calumny and of course they discovered that he did actually have <laughs> this s-shaped spine which was something of an own goal you know but um i don't know if that i don't know if that translates to an american audience but the, so it was um uh so there was that I, but it was very exciting very exciting indeed and one of the reasons why he has such supporters as they feel that he was a rightful king and they feel that he has been unjustly tarred with the murder of the princes in the tower. So the princes in the tower, for those who are coming to this and who are like, who are they, um, were um, Richard's nephews. Um, one of them, Edward V, had um, been named but was never crowned king. Um, and his younger brother, Richard, it's really un unfortunate there's so few names going around at this point in time. And their uncle decides that, in fact, he is king and he became aide Richard III. And the, the princes are, or possible king and prince, are put into the tower where they had been for to await Edward V's coronation, but then it becomes their prison and then they disappear. And so the question's always been, who killed them? And there are all sorts of theories. I mean, one suggestion, one chronicle of London says that they were killed by the vies of the Duke of Buckingham, or like, which could be on the advice of or by the device of the Duke of Buckingham. The Duke of Buckingham was one of Richard III's uh, wingmen, really, uh, his right-hand man. Um, or later, some people think the Ricardians, for example, would say that actually it's Henry Tudor who discovers them there and their great threat to his reign so that he has them killed. Um, or, of course, it could be Richard himself or somebody operating on his orders. I mean, my feeling... Will, will no one rid me of these troublesome kids, to exactly. paraphrase Henry exactly. II? <laughs> and to make a terrible pun, my hunch is that Richard was probably um, ultimately responsible. Maybe Buckingham did it, planning to... Uh, get you know Richard's favour as a result of having done it but I think that it probably happened on Richard's watch you know so I don't know if he instructed somebody or whether it was done in order to try and win his favour but I think it probably happened in his watch I think the key thing is that when he is charged with them murder you know when the, the rumours come out that they're dead if they're still alive he just needs to 
bring them out and be like, here they are. <laughs> They're exactly. not dead. Um, if they are dead, then he needs to bring out witnesses who say, look, they died of the plague or whatever. But the fact is that they're just not produced. And that, I think, is a problem. By you mentioned that he thought he was king. So he's so Richard III is the brother of Edward the Fourth, who is victorious in the Wars of the Roses, dethroning Henry the Sixth, and eventually Henry the Sixth meets his scheduled demise, as most deposed kings usually do. By what right did Richard the Third think that he should be king, or was it just related to Edward the youth? Um, no, so he was he was on account of Edward the youth regent, um, and so right. given powers of uh, governing the country during Edward's minority. But the reason he thought he was king was that he said that the marriage between Edward the Fourth and his wife Elizabeth Woodville had um, been. Uh, um, a non-standard marriage because there had been a pre-contract, basically that, that it wasn't a, um, a proper legal marriage, and therefore the children were bastards or you know illegitimate, and therefore mm-hmm. couldn't inherit the throne. I mean, ironically, of course, we get to Henry Tudor inheriting the throne through a fairly tenuous link that has illegitimacy down the line, if you go way back. So, I, I mean, it's a te- it's a technicality, and it's probably also not true. I'm still taking uh, uh, aspirin for the migraine that I have uh, brought on myself by studying the Tudor family tree. It is immensely uh, complicated. You get there, but it's not it's not a straight arrow visit. It takes quite a few twists and turns. The Richard III discovery was was you could say solved perhaps one mystery of British history. If you could solve another one, discover the truth about x which which would you choose it would be it would be uh Anne Boleyn. um i just have to be really i would i would like to uh know why she had to die because i find it highly unlikely that she was guilty of adultery and i don't believe that henry had given up on her before at least before early 1536, and if not later, um, and I, I just, I just don't understand exactly why it was that she had to die in that way. And so, I would like to go back and understand that case, that trial. Would you have voted to condemn her based on your research, or? Absolutely not. No, there's no there's no good evidence for her guilt. None at all. And also, the other thing is that there's a problem in law. You just got me started on a hobby horse here. But <laughs> so she is charged with adultery incest. and incest and conspiring the king's death. Now, adultery and incest are not treason, mm. right? So the only thing she can be executed on is conspiring the king's death, which is, I mean, such such a tenuous case against her i mean like she has had a conversation with a man in which she has said you look for dead men's shoes for if aught came to the good if aught but good came to the king you would look to have me which is saying you want to marry me when my husband's dead with henry norris so it's, she's imagined the king's death in words and since 1534 that's been a, an act of treason 
that's been but it's it's hardly conspiring the king's death to just like mention like you know one day he might die oh my god you've conspired the king's death i mean you know so it's such an exaggeration we we only post the audio on the leaders and legends podcast but in this one case, I wish we could post the video because Professor Lipscomb is animated in her defense of the Queen of England. That's terrific. Uh, would you have voted to condemn Thomas Cromwell, the man who worked so hard to condemn Anne Boleyn? Well, he was doing the king's work, wasn't he, really, when he condemned Anne Boleyn? I mean, he was good at doing dirty work, Thomas Cromwell. But again, <laughs> but again, what did the guy do wrong in the end? I mean, he did a lot of things wrong along the way. There's a moment where um, one of the three abbots who stood up against the dissolution of the monasteries, the abbot of Glastonbury, for example, um, had in Thomas Cromwell's notes, it says, item the abbot of Glastonbury to be tried and executed, giving you a clear indication that the, the, what happened at the trial had no bearing on whether the man was going to be executed or not. I mean, the man, Cromwell was a rogue, that's, that's for sure. But what he actually did to justify his death in 1540, I mean, all he seems to have done really is not act quickly enough to get Henry out of his marriage to Anne of Cleves. And Henry obviously thought he didn't want a rerun of the Catherine of Aragon situation. But still, I can't... No, there was no, there's no good reason for condemning Cromwell either. Would, would part of you want to condemn Cromwell for how he treated... Queen Anne Boleyn like do you get what you get well this is why I want to go back and see it because it's why I want to know because I want to know how much it's Cromwell how much we should hold Henry VIII responsible I mean there's a great question of whose initiative is at work here really I've been to the Tower of London I think four times three or four times and it's my favorite place when I visit uh, London for just more reasons that I can count but there is a little bit of solemnity when you walk onto the grounds, the courtyard, and there is that uh, glass pillow that represents supposedly where Anne was executed uh, as someone I'm sure is a frequent visitor to the tower and in a good way, not in a bad way. Uh, I read a great book called The Tower, and I forget who wrote it, but it was absolutely it was a new book like four or five years ago. It tells you all these amazing stories. I'll have to look it up. Um, to tell the listeners. But as someone who visits the tower uh, frequently, what do you think when you walk in that particular area and see the pillow and see the plaque dedicated to Anne Boleyn? Yeah, it's a very moving place to be. And uh, obviously Lady Jane Grey was executed there as well. Catherine Howard. Um, You know, a number of people, seven people in all were executed in Tower Green as opposed to outside the Tower Walls on Tower Hill. I tend to think of um, Sir Thomas Wyatt. So he was a poet, a wonderful poet mm-hmm. in Henry's court. Um, and he also was arrested on charges of adultery with Anne, but sort of miraculously didn't die for it and was released. But he writes, The bell tower showed me such a sight that sticks in my head both day and night. Um, and he was being kept in the bell tower um, and he writes about how he could see out of a grate. So you can imagine a sort of window with um, a grating on it. Nowadays, if you go there, you'll see some buildings uh, from the Elizabethan period that are between mm. the bell tower and the green. But in Wyatt's day, he could have seen out 
to the green and he could have seen and die and so i always think about that about the sort of the geometry <laughs> the geography of that moment mm -hmm. of seeing your friend because they were childhood friends be executed how old was Anne when she was executed so we're not absolutely certain when she was born. There's some discussion about it, but my estimate is that she was um, about 35, 36. The book that I was referencing was called Tower by Nigel Jones. It's superb. Um, it's part of the sentimentality about Anne Boleyn's death, uh, a, the fact that Henry had to have her so much that he divorced his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And then uh, the fact that she is the mother of the person whom many consider England's greatest queen, and that's Queen Elizabeth I. I think those are two of the things. Yes, it's, it's an interesting one because there's a, a kind of cult status around Anne Boleyn. And maybe it's partly because of her tragic death and that she's... Elizabeth's mother and that Henry had moved heaven and earth to be with her. And there's also a sense in which she's often seen as a kind of proto-feminist, that she had stood up for what she believed in. Not quite sure how she did that, but that's one of the things that's often said about her, or that she, you know, had not wanted to be um, Henry's mistress. That's often cited as, as something mm. of importance. She wouldn't sleep with him until... Yeah, which is a sort of strange value for people to, to like, yes, she was, you know, anyway, <laughs> she made a promise. <laughs> um, so it's not something you'd expect to be kind of uppermost in people's minds as a defining characteristic of a, of a feminist today. But anyway, that's um, something that's often mentioned. And I, I think, but I think ultimately it's just that there's a sense that she was a quite a strong character. And she certainly was. So was Catherine of Aragon. You know, it's an interesting... Henry liked most of his women, apart from Jane Seymour, who definitely seems like a sort of rebound girl. Um, most of his women were really, uh, were, were really pretty feisty. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Professor Susanna Lipscomb, British historian, and without a doubt, one of the most delightful follows, follows you will ever have on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, I strongly suggest you look her up on Twitter. Her handle is at 16th. C girl, capital C, and she has a Facebook page. Just look her up. More than 68,000 followers on Facebook and 130,000 followers on Twitter. May I ask one more condemnation question? Sure. Would you have voted to condemn Mary, Queen of Scots, to death? I'm beginning to sound like a lawyer, but again, what's the, what's the guilt? I mean, she's charged with treason. She's not a Brit she's not an English subject, isn't like how can she be charged with treason, right? Like, so it's a it's a again they have to do such twists and turns to say that she's guilty of treason. Uh and they obviously do that because they can see that she's a massive threat to, to the throne, but there's no legal grounds for executing her. Yeah. The letters aren't enough. 
The letters well, where she gets a little saucy. Yeah, I mean, obviously she has. You can say she's conspired a plot. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure there might be some other charge. I'm just saying that mm-hmm. the one that she was charged with was something you can only charge. Right, I, I can't be charged with treason. Uh, um, you know, against the American state because I'm not American, right? So you, you just need... They obviously couldn't come up with something better, though. So that means suggests to me that they didn't feel their evidence was particularly strong. To me... Uh, well, let me ask you a question and then maybe I can weigh in and you can grade me. Um, who do you mm-hmm. consider to be the greatest or at least the most deserving martyr of, of English or British history? I'm very moved by the story of Cramer and Latimer and Ridley. Um, so they were Archbishop Thomas Cramer, who rings, um, and sorry, and Bishop um, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were bishops of Worcester and London, and who were all condemned by Mary I. Cramer, I think, particularly, I find something in his story rings a bell with me because um, he wasn't a perfect saint. Mm. He um, did all sorts of terrible things, really, along the way. The moments where you think, oh, well, that's not your finest hour, Cramer, is it? You know, where? And, um, and yet he is also the man who wrote the Book of Common Prayer and therefore wrote some of the most perfect verses in the English language and who was responsible for such extraordinary change but from Mary the first point of view he was the man who had basically rendered her father and mother who had taken the Roman church away from the English people and who you know was personally responsible for that and so she wanted to make sure that he wasn't just condemned for treason, but also for heresy. Um, and so I find the story of Cramer being forced to watch his friends, Ridley and Latimer, die in a ditch, be burnt in a ditch outside of Oxford, um, near where I'm speaking to you from, and then for Cramer himself to suffer the same fate um, a year later, very moving. You're discussing uh, Bloody Mary, Mary the First, who was the daughter of Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Does Bloody Mary deserve her nickname? Only if we're going to say Bloody Henry VIII and Bloody Edward VI and Bloody Elizabeth I as well. I mean, they all were responsible for as many deaths as Mary. I mean, as, as a Catholic, you know, I like to think that Bloody Mary's getting a bad rap, but I could be wrong. She was getting, she is just getting a bad rap. She's getting a bad rap because she's Catholic and because she was a woman. And those two things combined have not really favorably served um, her in English history. I think that if you look at Edward VI's reign, for example, a comparative one, people always go, oh, well, look how many people died, but Elizabeth was on the throne for 45 years or Henry was on the throne for 37 years. But Edward VI, after the rebellion in Norfolk in 1549, in the two weeks after that, as many people were killed in a fortnight among the rebels as were killed Protestants in Mary's reign. So if we're talking just quantity, then, of course, actually, Edward was just as bloody as Mary. 
the reason why she is held up as being bloody is because partly because of the way they died and not just that the people died um so 312 people died either in the, the sort of fires of faith as Eamon Duffy has called them at the stake or awaiting trial that they're dying for their faith for their conscience is part of it um and that the sort of great turn of English history thereafter is away from Roman Catholicism that the you know that I mean, you know, we we kill a king for for goodness sake for being a bit too Catholic. So you know, you can see that that's not the that's not the direction we're going. You know, she's referring um, to James the uh, second. Well, he wasn't killed, but he was booted. Charles, Charles the first, Charles and we get rid first. of and we get rid of James the second later for being too Catholic. Exactly. So you know, there's it's a it's a general trend. Um, Mary Queen and, of Scots to me. Uh, you when you were talking about it earlier, there there are people in history who you you read about. And it's just it's just a bit tough to get through because, you know, you know how it ends. Yeah. I think for Americans, the, the person you could say that about perhaps would be Abraham Lincoln or John F. Kennedy. You know, when, when you look at the footage or the film of, of Kennedy getting off the plane in Dallas in November of 63, uh, you're like, just just get back on the plane uh, for Mary, Queen of Scots. To me. She, along with Catherine of Aragon, are the two most tragic figures of the Tudor period. Uh, am I being too sentimental, or would you, would you rank others ahead of them? They're certainly very they're very moving stories. I often find the story of Catherine of Aragon very moving indeed. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, um, she's certainly a tragic figure. Um. She's, I mean, she's also a real moaner, right? Like she's she's not so so. I mean, she's having a terrible time, to be fair, but (laughs) she does. (laughs) But but she doesn't show any of the sort of fortitude that we see in Catherine of Aragon. And of course, the other thing that we often condemn her for, I suppose, you know, censorious historians, is that she's made some terrible choices of men. But you know, which of us hasn't? I mean, so the <laughs> we can be a bit moralistic, I think, sometimes in our judgments. But I think that actually, you're right. I mean, these are really tragic stories. These women, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, and Scott Lady Jane Grey, perhaps. That's I'd say Lady Jane Grey as well. Go ahead, please expand on that and make sure the the, the listeners know who Mary Jane, Lady Jane Grey was. I'd also add Lady Jane Grey because she was. Uh, a 16-year-old girl who was named as queen after Edward VI died. So Edward VI being Henry the Fir- <laughs> get them in the end. Edward VI being Henry VIII's eldest son, and he was a Protestant, so he didn't want to name his half sister Mary the First. We've just been talking about as so-called Bloody Mary as his heir. So instead, he named his Protestant cousin Lady Jane Grey and claimed that Mary was illegitimate. Um, and Jane is just this girl caught up in the midst of all of this, really. Um, And she takes the charge of being queen. We have letters she signs off as Jane the Queen. But when she goes into the tower, much like Edward V, to be crowned, she never comes out except to be executed. And it's a very sad story. Because she kind of just 
was there wrong place wrong time i guess is that a way of saying it i mean it was it was a bit of a surprise i mean she had her adherents and she had her supporters but she kind of was just caught up in this this hurricane and then it ended so quickly exactly do you have a favorite english history movie Ooh. if so what is it I guess I should ask that part of the question. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. could have just said yes. I'm just thinking. So the top film I always say about history would be, is actually a French film. It's called The Return of Martin Guerre, Return of Martin Guerre. There was a f- version of this made called Summersby. Do you remember with Richard Gere in the 1980s? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a story from... Uh, from the actual French archives in the 1560s where a man called Martin Guerre uh, goes off to the wars and then um, is then returns and seems to be much nicer than he used to be. Looks exactly the same, but his character seems to have changed. And then the case comes out that he, it's argued, someone comes along and says he's an imposter. And this appeared in actual trial records. And so there's a brilliant film made about it. But that's not about English history. It doesn't really answer your question. Mm-hmm. This is a thinker. Um, there have been so many excellent uh, movies. On, I know, but you know, what's going to happen is tonight I'm going to be thinking about this and I'm going to be like, I should have said that one. <laughs> um. <laughs> my, uh, to the extent that it matters, my favorite uh, English history movie is um, Beckett. Oh, that's with a good one. Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. And, and and to me, Beckett is my my ultimate English martyr, condemned and slaughtered by the knights on December 29th, 1170, I think that's right. And uh, you know, he's he's a bit of a complicated character, but the movie itself is just brilliant. And then to go to Canterbury Cathedral and kind of walk around and and feel his um feel his presence a bit. And it was during that time when the when there were so many great English history movies being made in the '60s. You had Beckett. You had A Man for All Seasons. Speaking of martyrdom, Sir Thomas More. You also had uh, The Lion in Winter, a brilliant movie. Um, but there's been a lot of really strong movies lately. Uh, the Lion in, Win- in Winter is a very very good film. I quite like Shekhar Kapoor's Elizabeth. It's totally ahistorical. <laughs> There's so much of it that's not true, but it sort of captures the feeling of the period, I feel. Well, that was a question I was actually going to follow up when you, uh, uh, based on your favorite movie, is is it hard for you as as, as such a, you know, a, 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 has a doctorate in history from Oxford to look watch a movie like, say, Braveheart, which is obviously delightfully entertaining, and the history is as out of whack as I mean, they might as well just be flying. I mean, Mel Gibson might as well just fly a plane onto the <laughs> battleground. Some of the details are so wrong. Can you just say, you know what, this is a bit of a pop and I should view it in that way? Basically, the closer it comes to my territory, the harder that is. So I might be able to forgive it for something like Braveheart because it's not a period I work on. When it's something like the series The Tudors, like it's. It, I find myself wincing. I really believe that these things should be made and made in whatever way someone feels right. And actually, you know, for example, I really enjoyed the A Knight's Tale, which is obviously deliberately <laughs> anachronistic. 
But maybe it's because it was so deliberately so that it could get away with it. Like, you know, in the same way as if you're watching Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. it's not trying to be history. It's just kind of borrowing from history. Once I'm watching a film that is about the 16th century, so Anne of the Thousand Days, for example, about the fall of Anne Boleyn, then I can't really take off the the glasses through which I view these things. I can't just be like, oh, I'm going to relax and enjoy this because it's a busman's holiday, you know. I'm not enjoying it (laughs) much as I want to. How historically accurate is Monty Python and the Holy Grail? (laughs) That's just enjoyable. (laughs) We are uh, talking with Professor Susanna Lipscomb, uh, noted world-famous and incredibly popular and brilliant uh, historian of Tudor England. And many other things. And she's also the host of the podcast, Not Just the Tudors. You may find the podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. Who do you consider the most overrated person of the Tudor period? Can I let you into a secret? I actually think that Elizabeth I is kind of overrated. Because she didn't have a lot to do with some of her supposed biggest achievements? or Yeah, I mean, I know this is controversial. I know she has been voted as one of the top monarchs in this country mm-hmm. again and again. Uh, and you're right, like actually most of the things that were done in her name were not done by her and they were mostly done in the face of her not making decisions and being fairly non-committal and fickle and she was also quite a nasty piece of work um you know stabbing a fork into one Mm -hmm. of her serving ladies hands and that sort of thing um getting really irritated when people who were supposed to just be dancing around her married each other as opposed to just spending their time fawning by her side she was um, a bit she was it's fair to say she was a bit of a jealous person with regard to especially as she, <laughs> if you could just see the look that professor lipscomb gave me <laughs> i can't do it justice with any word in the language but you know she would she'd be very uh, jealous of how other women looked especially as she aged she was wildly so i mean like for example when sir walter rawley raleigh we know him as more um married bess throckmorton who was one of elizabeth's serving ladies i mean basically she was jealous of both of them like they should have both been courting her how dare they (laughs) fancy each other right there's just not no scope for that so um i mean she was appalling towards people utterly appalling so I sort of think that everything that happens is kind of despite her or, you know, that, that there are these amazing men around her and women and they're achieving extraordinary things and they do so in the face of her resistance and reluctance. Now, maybe that's why they succeeded. Maybe it's a sort of necessity being the mother of invention. Maybe we needed her to be so blooming difficult for these things to happen. But I do think she's a bit overrated. So if you were to to uh, get asked that same question at one of the BBC history um, symposiums that they have, which I'm dying to go to, I've never gone to, but I'm I'm hope that's on my bucket list to go 
over to England for one of these amazing history events. If you were to get asked that question and you were to give that answer, what do you think the response among the crowd would be? I mean, I think I would have just eradicated most of my fan base right there. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I think some people would be nodding along, but I think there would be like, at least 75% of the room would be looking aghast. And it's partly because she's become sort of such a mythic figure uh, that she was this great monarch. But I, as I say, I think it was not necessarily her doing I asked you who was the most overrated person in Tudor history. So who was the most underrated? I think that Anne of Cleves is pretty underrated. I'm a big fan of Anne of Cleves. So she, she's been... Talk about a horrible, talk about a horrible ending. The poor woman was forsaken by everybody and in her own family and her, you know, her ex-stepson, I guess that would be Edward the six would call me she just seems to have been kind of shunted aside and then at the end she didn't really get much what she was promised or do i have my history wrong yeah that's i think that's right so so anna cleaves henry's fourth wife to whom he's married for six months and who has gone down in history as being a very ugly woman um because you know flanders mare was the phrase coined in the Mm -hmm. 17th century um and absolutely i mean edward the sixth her stepson doesn't really stand by her and she does in the end sort of gradually get poorer until she dies in 1558 although is buried in some great state next to the mosaic pavement in Westminster Abbey 1558 um, isn't that the same year uh, um, Elizabeth comes to the throne yeah yeah that, that's uh, right bloody Mary dies or Mary the first the, I guess we and should the say. same year that Mary the first dies yes that's mm-hmm. right um but I think she was an extraordinary woman she seems to have been well, maybe extraordinary is going too far, but she was, uh, Catherine Parr was probably an extraordinary woman, but Anne of Cleves was a kind woman and a good woman. And she was perfectly attractive as far as anyone else was concerned. Um, and I think Henry took against her because of the fact that she didn't recognise him when he first turned up mm. in disguise to meet her uh, and really gets rid of her as quickly as he can he wouldn't have married her if he could got away with it and so she's left home and she keeps face i guess i'm quite a a fan of people who manage to sort of soldier on um in the midst of very difficult circumstances and she did that and she accepted the situation with grace and she even and this is extraordinary to me so he marries henry marries very soon afterwards within a month um, her former maid, Catherine Howard. I can't help it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like something. Within a month. And on the day that Thomas Cromwell dies, just to add a certain piquancy to the wedding, you know, that you can hear this, <laughs> oh, we've just got the news in that Cromwell's head is off. Um, and Anne of Cleves comes back to court six months later at their invitation and dances with her former maid. I mean, before that, she kneels before her. She grovels before her as if we're told, the commentators say, as if she was the sort of the most, the lowliest maid that ever was. She had been Queen of England. This woman had been her maidservant. She has been chucked out of her position. Her maid is lording it over her, who is now a queen. And Anne has the grace and humility to kneel before her. And then not only that, but to dance with her. They stay up late dancing. Henry goes to bed, apparently. 
next morning they get up dine together again and dance together again i'm just like anne of Cle- that woman had class she had class reminds me a bit of um queen alexandra the um, wife of king henry edward the seventh who when he's dying has just days to live make sure that his mistress, long time, decades long mistress, Alice Keppel, is that right? Gets to say her goodbyes. It takes a lot of class to to go that far, especially yes. in, in that time. Uh, we talked just as a few minutes ago about Elizabeth I and her rank uh, when it comes to English slash British monarchs. Um, where would you, who would you put at the top? So a monarch that we think should be the top of the list of best monarchs ever? Yes. If you had to say, you know what, it's a tough choice, but I, I had to choose one who I think's reign just just was as good as it could possibly have gotten during the time and was impactful. My favorite uh, English king is Henry I for numerous reasons uh, about studying, uh, studying the monarchy, uh, laws, how, how I thought he was... A, He's excellent when it comes to foreign policy, if you want to call it that at the time. Suffers one of the greatest tragedies of all time when his son and heir dies on the white ship, which is there's a brilliant new book by Charles Spencer about the white ship uh, tragedy. Anyway, uh, but if you had to choose someone who's like, you know what? They're all, they're, we got several good ones, but this one to me is probably first among equals. I mean, I think that probably Henry V has earned his place in terms of uh, by the sort of standard measures of, you know, winning empire mm-hmm. <laughs> in France, <laughs> being a great warrior king, um, but you know, isn't on the throne for that long. So I'm not sure whether Is it nine years, ten yeah, years. Yeah, that's yeah, nine years. So I'm not sure whether that sort of really qualifies him. I mean, it's so difficult with these things, isn't it? Because it's always how do how do you measure success? I mean, our current queen, to be perfectly honest, although as a constitutional monarch and therefore even less responsible for things that have been done (laughs) in her reign than (laughs) Elizabeth I, I think she's pretty awesome. Um, Do we say Victoria? Or again, do we now look back at the period in which she was queen and think, actually, it's sort of not... Well, probably the... By quite a lot of things that happened now, really. I would guess the two best known... Well, maybe not, but certainly two of the best known uh, English monarchs to Americans. One would be George the Third, mm-hmm. and then um, I would say it's the other on one. Him losing the colonies. Yes, I, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite uh, examples of British uh, snobbery toward the Americans, and I say that with a smile and not accusing you personally, of course, is when the uh, the British uh, had a movie it's called George the Third. Nigel Hawthorne was uh, playing. Uh, the king and when they released it in the united states they retitled it to the madness of king george because they were scared that the americans would think it was a sequel <laughs> is that, that was, true that is absolutely true i thought it was a delightful little bit of <laughs> of you know of english attitude i think it's funny and the other one would be obviously because of braveheart edward the first known as Longshanks. Yes, and a very impressive king. I also really like the depiction of George III in Hamilton. That wonderful, yes. wonderful song. <laughs> That's brilliant. We have just a few minutes left with uh, historian Susanna Lipscomb. If you could go back in time 
and box the ears of any figure in British history, whom would you choose? Probably John Hawkins. Sir John Hawkins. He... I'm not sure a boxing of the ears would be completely sufficient, really, but he was the person who was responsible for starting the slave trade, essentially. He was a privateer. He was going to West Guinea in the 16th century, um, and he's the, one of the first to start, first English people, anyway, to start um, transporting Africans across the seas. So I think a boxing of the ears would be the least I could do. Perfect answer. If you could have someone representative of the Tudor era on Twitter, whom would you choose other than Shakespeare, please? Or Shakespeare well, and? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I've mentioned Thomas Wyatt. He did an almost equivalent at the time, actually. There was a manuscript called the Devonshire Manuscript, which circulated around the court in the 1530s. And many women at court, as well as the great poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt, wrote little ditties in it and responded to each other. So it was kind of like an early modern Twitter. So I think he'd be quite good at it. I have several other questions and I'm not going to get to all of them. I actually, I think I have like 178 questions and I've gotten to like 20 <laughs> of them, uh, but the tutors uh, to wrap up the discussion on the tutors before we uh, move on, uh, they were able to do something collectively, perhaps that, that most, or at least a few of the dynasties before them were unable to do. And that is to successfully pass the crown to a new dynasty uh, relatively bloodlessly um, the uh, the anglo-saxons couldn't do it they were conquered by the normans the lancastrians couldn't do it you could even say the plantagenets couldn't do it when uh, uh, richard ii was kicked off the throne in 1399 by um, someone who eventually became henry the fourth how were the tudors read a book called the right to be a king i forget who wrote it it was all about the stuart and Tudor sort of handoff. How were the Tudors able to basically give up their throne to the Stuarts in 1603 in a way that kind of just kept things going in a certain way without an execution, a death, you know, some giant battle that decides things? I think it largely comes down to the people around Elizabeth I. So in this case, particularly to Robert Cecil um, and others who had a game plan for how to manage the transition because Elizabeth made it particularly difficult by not nominating her successor. So they had to imagine all the possible scenarios and, of course, that changed constantly over her reign and then be able to swing into action. So, you know, getting riders on the road, getting up to Scotland, telling the news quickly before it got out, crucial to their success. And it, interestingly, given that we talked about Lady Jane Grey and Mary I earlier, 
or Jane the First and Mary the First, if we want to be picky about it, we could say that um, one of the problems when Edward the Sixth was dying was that the information wasn't kept quiet, and so Mary learned that Edward was dying and was able to escape, so he couldn't choose his successor in the way he wanted. Now, this isn't Elizabeth necessarily choosing her successor because she refuses to be pinned to it, but it means that her the people around her were poised, um, prepared, ready to go at the moment that she died. She's succeeded by James, who is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. And I think, the is it the grandson, great-grandson of Mar- Margaret Tudor, who is the sister of Henry VIII? Um, last question before we get to the five questions that we end all of our podcasts on. A few years ago, I was on a TV show, a history TV show, a local show um, hosted by a phenomenal man named P.E. McAllister, who was a proud Scot, who actually, since we're recording this on August 30th, would be 103 years old today. He lived to 101 and was a huge lover of history and hater of Edward I at the same time. Uh, We did a show on the most impactful premature deaths in history. And the one that I nominated of several uh, was Arthur Tudor. Arthur Tudor was the first son of Henry VII. He's married to Catherine of Aragon. He dies. Uh, whether their marriage was consummated is somewhat of a, of a mystery to be solved. Uh, who would you nominate as, as, as a, the most significant or a significant premature death not only in Tudor history, but in English history. There are so many. There are so many. But the one that comes to mind is the Tudor one. It's uh, Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII's first son, or only son, I suppose. He dies at seven weeks old, Henry, Prince Henry, um, in 1511. If he had lived, the course of English history would have been entirely changed. We've reached the point. In the Leaders and Legends podcast, where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Lipscomb, are you ready? No. <laughs> They're such difficult questions. <laughs> Does that work in well, your class? <laughs> well, some of them. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I still have to go ahead. Uh, what was your first job? My first job was um, when I was 15, 16, I was doing uh, secretarial work. My mother had taught me to touch type. And so I did lots of temping work in my summer holidays in offices. Um, sort of unimaginable now, but typing things up for people from um, dictation. What was your first concert? My first concert was the Rolling Stones. Amazingly, might even be one of my parents' first concerts as well. But I went, um, I don't know how old I was, teenager, and they were incredible. Rest in peace, Charlie Watts. Oh, man. Number three, if you could, these are always tough for historians who come on the podcast, but number three, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh, this is just, uh, this has just been. I'm still deciding as I try and answer because I've been wrestling with this one. Do I say a history book or um, where am I going to go in the end? What am I going to plump for? I think I'm going to go for Viktor Frankl's um, uh, Man's 
search for meaning. Now I'm having a sort of doubt that it's actually its title. Hold on a second. Um, you know, when you know something so well, you actually talk nonsense. Yeah, man's search for meaning. I think I'm going to go for Victor E. Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, which is the story of his time in a concentration camp um, and of discovering really what it is at the core of who we are in the face of such evil. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? If you want to choose a Tudor event and a non-Tudor event, since you're Zooming from London or from England, we'll give you two. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, the the Tudor one, you might even guess, because we've talked about it already, I want to be at Anne Boleyn's trial. Um, and uh, I want to know exactly went down, what went down there and what was said. What was the evidence? Because we don't have the trial records. We just have the indictment. So I want to be there. I want to see their faces. I want to look them in the eye. And I want to try and figure out what I think happened. The non-Tudor one... Um, without wishing to sound too pious, but once I'd thought of this, I couldn't unthink it. I wanted to be on the road to Emmaus. Um, <laughs> so I want to see um, what happened when those two men reported having met the resurrected Christ. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? So my choice here was split between two fairly big predictable sort of names, which would be Obama, because I, mean, I just think the man is extraordinary. And he's the most, most cited, most chosen person for this, which I think, and then I think the second most chosen is George W. Bush, ironically. That would not be my second choice. My second choice would be the Queen, because that woman has met... Every leader in the last 50, 60 years, almost 70, you know, 70 years now, um, and she has seen such stuff. And, you know, she's met basically almost every, I think there was one president she didn't meet, wasn't there? Um, and she's met all the prime ministers and she knows the stories and she doesn't tell them to anyone. <laughs> so I would you, love to have, have two hours with her. Have you ever met her? No, I haven't. Uh, strangely, as it so happened, I haven't ever met her. And I wish I would have loved to have met Prince Philip. Um, I would have loved to have met him. Um, but The British royal family, are, I mean, they're in the news for lots of things these days, but they also seem to be in the news quite a bit. I think it's Prince Edward, who is the big historian, uh, who tries to, um, am I wrong, who tries to... Uh, keep that that sort of history up and does a lot of uh, funding and that sort of thing um have you i mean i guess as an american i should ask have you got to meet any member of the royal family i no, mean you're so funny. prominent you're so respected it makes sense that they would they would reach out to you funnily enough that's not being top of their agenda um i i mean it's funny because it's a it's a small world and if you ask this question to Dan Snow, <laughs> I mean, he was at the Kate and Williams wedding. So, you know, there's, um, I remember being asked, I was asked to commentate for a Canadian television channel um, because Dan Snow had passed on my name because he couldn't do it because he was going, you know. So I, I by a couple of degrees of separation, I should do. But as it so happens, I haven't, I haven't met them, no. 
One last question. Please give us just a, a flavor of what you're up to now. I know you have a new book come out that you've edited and uh, tell the Leaders and the Legends podcast audience what uh, Professor Lipscomb is working on these days. <laughs> yeah, so the new book is called What is History? Comma, now, question mark. Um, and is a look at how the past and the present speak to each other. It's thinking about the sort of history we write now. It's a, a response, an homage, I suppose, to um, E.H. Carr's What is History that came out in 1961. So this is 60 years since that. And I've co-edited it with Helen Carr, who you, whom you mentioned, who is E.H. Carr's great-granddaughter. But it's a collection of essays by all sorts of wonderful writers like Simon Sharma, Maya Jasanoff, and many other people that you would recognise. Um, and uh, so that's been really fun. That's just coming out. Um, and I also am, I mean, I'm always working on a book. I'm working on a book. Um, I'm writing one about Henry VIII's Queens. Um, such an understanded period. I really feel like someone needs to produce a book on it. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. And uh, and as you've said, you've very kindly mentioned my podcast. So that's ongoing as well. And various bits and pieces like that. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Dr. Susanna Lipscomb the world's leading authority and certainly the most incisive writer and researcher of the Tudor period in English history. Professor Lipscomb, thank you so much for your time. Obviously, we were thrilled to have a chance to talk with you. You're too kind. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.